Pearl teaches you as, as cool as Pearl is in some things, <laughs> and I still love oh, I God, still love no. the way Pearl's Red Jacks are a first class citizen and fight me. Come on, come at me, bro. <laughs> That's. Um, but I'll give you that one. I will give you that one. The big thing I miss about Python is shitty regex support. The number of bugs you don't write in a strongly typed language, you don't know because you don't write them, but you don't write them. <laughs> yeah, I write much more efficiently, and it's easier to debug the code with with static typing. And of course, that's what I learned first, so I guess I'm screwed. Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about 2020 being, well, being the year that it was. Ugh. It has not been the smoothest year. But it's almost over. Yeah. Can't come soon enough. But last year when we were doing this episode, we're doing the the end of year episode, kind of looking at the things that have been happening in the, the year ahead. One of the things we were really hammering on was how Kubernetes was basically the future. And if you weren't there, get there. And that has just become true in so many more ways. I've been talking to several other uh, other folks, and I've realized um, that the big banks are running Kubernetes. The major insurance shops are running Kubernetes. Um, If Kubernetes hasn't won at this point, you know, I don't know what has. Because the the large major corporations that are known for moving slowly with technology are adopting Kubernetes in force. I think one of the biggest tells is look at job postings. Yeah. You can't find one that doesn't list Kubernetes. Yeah, and and, and I agree with Jack. I mean, when you see banking institutions and institutions that are usually known for being, you know, not adopting the latest trends and most, if not all, have... have, uh, embraced kubernetes i i think that's the 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 biggest tell of all that yes they've won and i mean it's a little different than i think it was in in times past just because now you also have a lot of these institutions who are in uh, in the cloud and various cloud providers and so obviously they're going to embrace uh the technologies and tools that those providers are pushing and obviously kubernetes is being pushed by every major cloud provider there is so I think that's kind of obvious, but at the same time, I th- I th- again, it just shows the just how ubiquitous Kubernetes is in our uh, world today. And it's not just the cloud providers. It's the people like us that are demanding support from the cloud providers and telling the cloud providers we will pay them if they will run our Kubernetes clusters for us. And that, to me, that's the big point, because none of the job descriptions that I see and none of the people that I talk to who are changing jobs that are more Kubernetes focused are actually running the backplanes. Nobody's actually building out that part of it. You have administrative access to the cluster to stop and cordon nodes and things, but you're not you're not building Kubernetes from scratch for work, generally speaking. Now, there are, of course, exceptions, but by and large, the expectation for the job market at this point is you know how to deploy things, you know how and why to use the various pieces, and you can recover from failure when things go wrong, because that's obviously what we do in this business. So it's not, can can you use kubeadm to bootstrap a cluster from zero? It's, can you use GKE and get started and hit the ground quickly? And at this point, you need it. Well, I think it's completely reasonable as most people are, are moving to the cloud and if not already there. And it's having the big boys running it for you because it ain't easy. And it's an easy sell for them. It's well, a lot of work or you, we can do it for you for a price. And that's the other part of this year is with the geopolitical things going on in terms of the, the pandemic and everything else, the migration to the cloud, a lot of people's plans had been kind of, yeah, three to five years from now, we'll be doing some. And then suddenly it was, we're doing it right now. Everybody's all in. Yes. So the job market. Yeah, a lot of cloud migration has happened so much faster than any of us anticipated it would this year. And the job market reflects that. Like the job market is insane right now, just in terms of being different from the past. Not, and not necessarily in a good way. But it is very crazy right now. Well, obviously, All work from home jobs. Yeah, I was about to say remote <laughs> friendliness has has gone up, and that and that's something I feel like, it, if at least for myself personally, but obviously I, I believe was pretty predominant in our in our uh, job sector was trying to be more remote friendly, just because hey, 
either our servers in a data center across town or in another state or we're running in a very various clouds which they're tens of thousands of miles from us so why do we need to be in the office it's cheaper if you don't have to maintain so much office space in expensive downtown metropolitan locations so i think this trend is definitely something that's going to stay yeah one of the things i have noticed is there are better salaries available to people in areas that weren't previously within those scopes so in on the for example on the east coast of the u.s there are a, a couple of major centers like new york and chicago and or new york and charlotte and atlanta that have yeah check your geography there yeah it just works <laughs> um but they had they had the, the either the banking or the the stock commodity markets or whatever it was for the tech things and now it's Hey, if you're East Coast, really, you're in the right time zone, you're on the right hours with the rest of the team, yeah, you can get most of that salary anywhere. And that is a game changer for um, well, this entire industry. Yes. If you've got some skills in Kubernetes and have a good internet connection and a good work ethic, applying for jobs that, that were normally San Francisco Bay Area jobs only is well within your grasp. You know, here from North Carolina, even. Even Netflix is going remote. Even Netflix, man. So chiming in on that that from a totally different angle i you know now that i'm working in the netherlands um my company has already announced that once covid settles and everything else we're not going back to all in the office they're going to continue to allow work from home because the employees have proved it worked which is obviously what everybody else is seeing um and i'm in the financial industry and it's yeah they're pretty reticent to change, and this is something that they've embraced as, well, this works for us, and the employees are happier. Yeah, one of the interesting knock-on effects of this is going to be the commercial real estate market because those contracts are really long, but they're also really expensive. And talking to my friends both in municipal governments and in the tech sector, there isn't a lot of appetite right now for the tech firms to renew their leases on this really expensive you know, prime downtown real estate in the various tech hubs in the, in the country. And that's going to be interesting when they start saying, well, we're going to keep 50% of our office space. We're going to let go of two of those floors of the four or five that we have or whatever it is. And most people, we encourage you to work from home. And maybe that gives room for more tech startups and more companies to form. Or maybe not. I just wouldn't want to have my money in commercial real estate right now. <laughs> oh, no. No, 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 no. Not at all. No. But that being said, I, my, my company's got, we're, we have a whole floor, except not all of it's developed. And I, what's going to happen to that rest of that space? I don't know. Because I don't think we're going to need it. So I, it's, and it's, but it's also going to be interesting in a lot of other ways because all these people now working from home, they need different infrastructure than working in the office. Um, I maybe we're way behind, but my employer did not have laptops for everybody. Everybody was was using regular desktops before this hit. Now they've all bought laptops, but all those desktops are still sitting at the desks. I got so frustrated with the lack of good quality webcams on the various online retailers that I wired a piece of software that I now have an old iPhone mounted above my computer, and that is my webcam because... It's, it does 1080p, it's reliable, and I had it. And I did have to spend, you know, $300 for a used, you know, 1080p webcam from one of the major providers. I so. think next year we'll see a lot of audio-video equipment that is aimed at at the prosumer level, the, the business person working from home, um, not just us folks doing crazy podcasts. And I think that market will also take off. God, I hope some people buy it because... <laughs> audio good and video webcam? quality on, on zooms and stuff is not always the best i, mean, I, I think I will there will be a big economy about improving <laughs> that zoom uh fatigue that all of us have and having better communications throughout the world which leads the, to this work from home ethic which leads to high tech sk high skilled high paying jobs being available uh, to the masses that qualify for them 
which builds better and more equal opportunity um, for all of us. So I think that could really turn into positive change for society. I, I will to say I, I have noticed that more and more people have better uh, Zoom or, or online meeting etiquette lately. Um, there's a lot less uh, unmutes and people talking. I mean, obviously, there's still going to be some of those here and there. But it, by and large, a lot of the meetings I'm in where there always was at least one person, now it's very a rare occurrence for the ones that I'm in. It is definitely improving. It just, no. My experience is a little different because I just joined in the middle of the pandemic a new new organization and so I don't know what it was like with this organization before but just even in the time I've been here it is improved and as long as it keeps improving because it still has a way to go um, it's nice to see that people are there's less hey can somebody mute who's typing I hear you <laughs> <Yeah>. breathing <laughs> oh yes there, there are some folks I need to get some mic shields for. So other interesting changes in the technology landscape that we had sort of talked about last year and, and looked at was the IBM acquisition of Red Hat and that the completion of that merger. And very recently, we saw one of the first really big changes to the Red Hat, the Red Hat product, the Red Hat product portfolio, I guess. Sort of. Yeah. I mean, CentOS is now a Red Hat, I don't know if you call it a product, but it's owned by Red Hat now. And it has been for a number of years. Yeah. Yeah, that part is not new. Uh, Red Hat supported the CentOS uh, community for years and years, and it was more or less an undercover um, sort of project that they helped with, and it was undercover communication. Um, and the CentOS community did a lot to improve the RHEL ecosystem and the, the RHEL distribution. And finally, they uh, agreed, uh, because of everybody needed more help, of uh, sort of joining forces, and Red Hat did acquire the CentOS project at that point. Yeah, I mean, it was the, it was the way to get a development version of rel without paying a license for the support. Well, it or was the I, way you ran your QA servers. So you right. So you exactly. had support on your prod servers, but not only on HPC servers, the or HPC servers. you studied for the yeah. REL exams or all kinds of things. Yeah. So what Red Hat announced was that they were discontinuing uh, CentOS 8 at the end of 2021, I believe. And they would only have the CentOS Stream project, which is a rolling release, um, which they would fork REL from. So yeah, so it's all it's Fedora does a lot of the cutting edge development work and that will land into CentOS Stream and be a little more stable and occasionally that will become RHEL. Yes. Yep. And the announcement, I have to say Red Hat that their PR department has learned nothing. The announcement has done so much to alienate the entire CentOS and RHEL community. It's a good example of how not to do something like this. Yep. Really, Red Hat, learn. Eh, I think it's more of an IBM mistake than a Red Hat mistake, to be honest with you. It does Maybe. have IBM written all over it. It really does. But there are some subtleties here. And I think some of the subtleties are worth kind of pointing out. Red Hat's model of how they, how they release software has always been to take an upstream product patch it up, make it stable, slap Red Hat on it, and offer support. And there's never been an upstream release that RHEL has been based on. So that's what the CentOS stream uh, a product has become. Red Hat has, has made their own upstream that's an open source project for which they're going to fork RHEL off of. So some of that does make a little bit of sense for what Red Hat has done and how they've supported uh, the open source community in the past, and I I definitely see what they're what they're trying to do in, in trying to make RHEL a more community driven uh, distribution in that way. I think they did everything they could in the announcement to alienate a bunch of the community, though. Yeah, that was they promised mm. a few extra project uh, products in early 2021 to help patch over some of the holes that now exist. But of course, they're not available yet. 
Yeah, I was about to say there's been several commenters in like Hacker News or Reddit threads that say, you know, I work for Red, for Red Hat and, you know, we're we're going to do some things soon to, you know, it, it, it they kind of alluded to either cheaper or, or I guess more expanse of the free licenses or development licenses for RHEL. Um, but they can't obviously comment on it yet, and they say it's coming soon. And then obviously everybody's replying and saying, well, you made this announcement first. You need to follow <laughs> up with something better before the community does something, which they already Too have. Late. So yeah. yeah with, with hindsight being 2020, haha. Um, <laughs> Ouch. Doing a, a better job of, of messaging would have been invaluable to them right now in terms of community goodwill. There's already at least one effective fork of what is currently the old CentOS style where somebody, I think it was one of the original maintainers of CentOS. The original CentOS folks have forked Rocky Linux. Yep. And that took them all of 24 hours. Which was slower than I expected, actually. There's a, CentOS also had a niche. Now you mentioned it earlier, HPC, which is the world I came from. We, there is no way we could afford RHEL on the cluster. Because you're talking hundreds and hundreds of instances. Or thousands at this point. For bigger ones, yeah. There's, we, it's just not affordable. But you need something stable. You need something of that level. And CentOS was the perfect fit for doing it. And it's, there, there, is, a, there is a market for, for having something that stable yet free out there and i can guarantee people are going to be looking hard at rocky there's yet another fork that came out a day or two later after rocky called cloud linux as another red hat enterprise linux clone i'll include some links in the show notes thank you jack i yeah i think we'll um we'll have some uh some replacements in that space absolutely and then and then you'll have companies like oracle linux who will try to really pitch their their you know rail clone as unbreakable a, linux as they yeah, call it <laughs> exactly unbreakable linux uh as a as a way to go about it as as a way for them to channel in or, or as a funnel for sales and there was a big part of me that saw this as nothing more than hey let's convert all these rel people all these centos people to rel people and get some money out of them and i know there was more to it than that but that was that was my first thought off of it is uh, money grab Again, oh, absolutely. Like, not all of this is bad. There are technically good reasons to do parts of this in, in terms of the way they're developing and maintaining and doing releases for RHEL. But the messaging was tone deaf. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to point out was having some history myself maintaining a large Red Hat Enterprise Linux install base. Um, if I needed a package of some software that didn't come with RHEL, finding that package was always a pain in the butt you had to you find an older version. You had to figure out how to recompile it and repackage the RPM to get it to work rel, well on rel. And usually that meant, you know, splunking through old Fedora versions, and it was a pain in the butt. Um, so having a rolling release stream for Red Hat Enterprise Linux where I can go and say and backport a package or pick a package that's not included by default, um, yeah, that would have meant the world to me. Well, isn't that also where, was it called, uh, software collections or whatever has come about? Because RHEL started all those different channels, and uh, so really what it was was uh, things that moved kind of quickly, which like Nginx or various programming languages like Ruby would be packaged in these software channels that would then be updated uh, more frequently. Apple. Yeah. And there's always a lot more stuff in, in Fedora that you just couldn't get to work on Red Hat Enterprise Linux without some major hackery. But that was part of the problem was you had to go searching which, where was this? You know, yes. I need this. Where, who's got the upstream one that is newer than RHEL that works in RHEL? Because it could be in Apple, it could be in a Fedora. It could be, you know, you had to go finding it. Then you had to, well, is it going to work with my particular one? It was, it was always a hassle. So, no, this is not all a bad thing. It was just badly handled. Another good thing that has come out of this is Red Hat Enterprise Linux used to be released on, I think, an 18-month schedule. So you had some predictability. And I think RHEL 3 was the last one that was released on that schedule. 
And ever since they got further and further apart, Red Hat doesn't release their release dates. So you had no way of predicting, you know, when that next Red Hat Enterprise Linux major version was going to come out until it appeared in your lap. And of late, it's been five years between releases, which is which is a lot. Um, with RHEL 8, Red Hat has committed to doing point releases every six months, and I think every two years for a major release, so RHEL 9 and two years from now. Um, so they're and effectively I think that adopting... Would be incredibly helpful. Yeah, I was about to say, they've got a canonical schedule. Yeah, they're, they're, they're adopting the, the LTS and, and six-month release schedule for relatively stable. And they should. That is the primary reason why I use and recommend the, uh, the Ubuntu LTS releases. It's not because they use Debs. Don't don't get me started on that. I don't. <laughs> we'll have another episode on package management. Debs and RPMs are both crap. Let's not fling. Poop. They're not crap. I just don't want my package manager to start services when I install things. But that's just me. Anyway, um, other other things of note um, that happened in the past little bit. Docker Hub has recently announced that if you don't have a paid account, they're going to limit the number of polls you can do. I think it's 100 every six hours is their, the new request limit. And they're trying to clamp down on basically being used as a free repository and you know save their bandwidth costs. Hey, but, bandwidth is money. But even at my small scale for the machine in my, my desktop, I have a couple of services, some systemd services that pull Docker containers from Docker Hub for like Prometheus and Grafana. And I know I should probably have my own private repo and all those things. But just restarting the machine, if there's some, there's a, there was a problem in one of the startup scripts, well, it was trying to restart every minute. And very, very quickly, you hit 100 requests, and now it won't start. And you have to basically cool off and wait. And that doesn't feel so good. And I get it. Bandwidth is expensive. I was about to say, I, 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 have, I can't blame them, because if you're hitting it, well, times how many people doing it out there? But it, it, it's not pulling the full image. It's doing the request that then gives you the hashes to tell you if you have the, the current copy of it. Because I have a cached version of it on the machine. Yeah, but it's just, just doing, doing the lookup. Just yep. doing the lookup is counts against the hundred every six hours. I I feel that that is they 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 put that limit in at a at too restrictive a level. Absolutely. Yeah, I can see that point. Yeah. You should be able to check your hashes, but you can, okay, you're not current, but you can't have the new one yet. Yeah. yeah. Or limit it to actual polling of layers and not checking the hashes or something. Um, and again, I have one machine that's doing this, and I managed to hit the limit a couple of times before I realized it and, and adjusted my back-offs. But that frustrated me. But it also stood out to me that the Kubernetes default container runtime is shifting. They had support for Docker for years and years and years, and they're now starting to push everybody by default to container D. And I know that, I think we talked about this last time, the last year episode, um, that Docker was being sold to some company. I don't remember who it is now. I had it in my head and I lost it, of course. Um, And I wonder if this is part of their attempt to monetize and make Docker, the company, profitable. Oh, it, it absolutely is. Because they, they were, there was like a split, a weird split, where some pieces went to the, the company and other pieces would stay open source or, or whatever. and Or not, I guess not there. It's all open source, but would stay like a community-driven thing. And, and so it's obvious that this is a, a play to um, boost the bottom line. It was Mirantis. I looked it up. There you go. But th- this reminds me, like, Docker is now starting to fall by the wayside to a degree. Um, I know Red Hat has Podman as their drop-in replacement for Docker that basically runs all the same commands and does all the same things, but is not Docker. And other other things moving away from it, it reminds me a lot of how other tool systems have changed and other tool chains that we use have changed and kind of shifted over the years. But this was expected, right? I mean, you had uh, various standards uh, or bodies to stand up to try and standardize what is a container now you have various runtimes. You you actually have a container spec. You have uh, various runtimes that implement that spec, and and that was the reason that Kubernetes did the change they did. Right was to say, hey, we're going to standardize on container D, so that way you can swap out your runtimes or you can use different things because we don't want to dictate that you have to use X. And and to Docker's credit, I believe that they have been pushing for this as well too, um, just because they don't want people to. Uh, 
I guess get mad at them, I guess, is this the biggest thing. But um, I, I think it's the best for everyone around that, that Kubernetes does not stick with a single runtime, that it's a, it's a you know, you can you do whatever. We're going to choose what we feel is the best for you, but you can obviously swap it out. Yeah, I think this is a, a, a good sign of the maturity of Kubernetes in the Docker ecosystem. The fact that we're adopting the standards that we have for container management uh, in this space. And anyone can play in that space as long as they adhere to the standard. And and I don't know if we want to get ready to the look into the future thing, but that's that's one of the things I really that's really stuck out with me is that I feel like that that I'm I'm gonna say Docker, but really it's containers in general have almost replaced I don't want to say a distribution because that's wrong. It's it's obvious yes, it's, you do. it's like a package management. But honestly, we we have stopped I mean with with especially with the CentOS news in the in uh in the news Yes, that's important, but at the same time, it's not as important to me as it would have been five years ago. Uh, I, I feel like everybody now, it's more of, does your product or your service run in, in Docker or in a container? And then that way you can run it in Kubernetes or Nomad or, or whatever you're doing and how you're scheduling it. But you don't care whether that's running on CentOS, Ubuntu, Gentoo, CoreOS. It does not, you, you don't care at that point. It's abstracted. Yeah, part and, of the CentOS and RHEL thing is... How relevant is RHEL as a distribution going to be in the coming years? We're not going to be putting that on our servers anymore. We're going to have a distribution that's aimed at doing one thing and one thing really well, and that's run containers. Yep, I agree. And we'll have some smaller distributions that we use to build those containers. And I think the distribution market will become increasingly irrelevant other than what we you know, run on our workstations. And like at work, I am no longer trying to install packages into my Docker container to, to build up the container that I need. I do multi-stage builds. And so I get the thing that I need as a Docker container. I make sure that it has the thing that I want in it. And then I copy the files out of it that I want. I don't actually do a, a YUM or an AppKit except for very basic level stuff like make sure I have SSL certificates and TLS you know runtimes but that's it I, yeah. I, I I feel bad about this but I'm even leveraging anymore for work pushing it doesn't even need to be in container it's time for lambdas that too I yeah I, I I'm leveraging as much as possible out of containers and into lambdas because I don't even need the whole container stuff anymore although it is, lambdas as our serverless uh, ecosystem, whatever, um, yeah. will be the next big competitor to Kubernetes in that cloud 2.0 I, I sort of thing. Agreed. I firmly believe that is where the market is going. It's going to take a little bit more time to get there, but I think... But I think that's where the major cloud yes. vendors are going to try to compete with Kubernetes. Absolutely. I think Kubernetes will be the interim solution to that we all had for a while. Even though Kubernetes is great and does what it does very well and is an amazing piece of technology, I just don't think it's, you know, it's designed to, we're going to take that whole OS and we're going to hide it from you so you don't have to maintain it, but do this one thing where, well, screw it. Let's just do that one thing by itself. Yep. And yeah, I... I Anyways, I, I, I think, agree. I, I think serverless is going to be further down in the future, but yes, I believe that will be yes a predominant thing down the down the road. And I think in the interim, Kubernetes is is going to be even bigger, and individual distributions slash even packages to a point are going to become or package managers are going to become less and less of a of a thing. Hallelujah! <laughs> Preach it, brother! Preach it! I mean, like on my desktop, I install as few packages as possible. Most of my my larger services run, as I mentioned earlier, as a systemd service file that spawns a container. Yep. Yeah. Well, I think we've, I, I don't know how much we've brought it up on, on here, but I have, I don't need the horsepower anymore because I don't use much on my desktop and my, you know, everything is shelling do something else or run, you know, pointing apps at something else. Yep. So I think that that just goes to the same thing of, doing the one thing where it needs to go, not trying to do everything where you are. Further looking into the future, I have been involved in a couple of projects recently, small things, working on operator patterns for Kubernetes. And that experience made it extraordinarily clear to me that developing against Kubernetes, as well as developing Lambdas, obviously, 
is kind of the next future thing to focus on. That being able to take somebody else's deployment or stateful set or set of services or whatever it is, and then you have your own business logic to add. And instead of trying to to shim it into a cron job container or something else, write an operator. And you can write them in Bash, you can write them in Python, you can write them in Go. There's a couple of really good frameworks for doing this that abstract away most of the the really awful part of the APIs. Uh, me and a couple of guys at work in two days wrote a very simple Python-based operator to work on Cassandra issues. And it's not complicated. And if you if you can read Python, you can read these operators. You don't need super in-depth knowledge of exactly how the the Kubernetes response calls work. And it's straightforward. I'll throw a link to the show notes of the one that we used. Um, K-O-P-F, cough, I think, is the way you pronounce it. Um, it's a Python thing. And basically, you just decorate your functions with the appropriate pieces. And now you have an operator you can load into your Cassandra um, or into your Kubernetes environment and then start taking actions and start doing work on your deployments natively. Yeah, Automatically. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, I think operators, and again, what Kubernetes allows us to be another step abstracted is where the, the highly skilled workforce is going to be focusing. I know I've written a couple of things that that had I written them in a different environment or a few years later would have been an operator. And then sort of in that line, I'm I'm also wondering if configuration manage, management, which in my mind, I securely think of Puppet and Chef, if that's pretty much dead at this point. Yeah, it's dead. You know, we, we've moved over to Terraform for for provisioning things in a cloud provider, and then we've switched over to Ansible for our uh, orchestration of those things. Yeah. And it, again, Kubernetes gives us a bunch of tools for config maps, managing configuration, secrets management. Right, all of that, exactly. All of those bits. So there's really a dearth of options if you're doing some basic container work or or Lambda work, but haven't really adopted Kubernetes yet. There's this dearth of options of of how to do configuration management for your uh, for your fleet for your network, and that's that's in a weird spot to be. And I know a lot of uh, folks that I've worked with are are still struggling with that. I uh, I'll, I'll be honest. I've I've sort of mourned the the death of Puppet. I'm not saying it was the best tool, but um, I uh, I really have as well. I I really enjoyed. I I thought the DSL was, I yes, I fought it at times, and it wasn't until what the pretty much the latest release that you have for loops and things like that. But I thought it was for for what it was at the time. It was it was a well thought out DSL, and I, I don't know. I I I thoroughly enjoyed it. So. I'm I'm gonna hate to see it go. Well, it was the best tool for the job. It's you know for what it solved. I miss the fact that people consider Puppet part of the old the old way of doing things, and I I think it's perfectly valid today in some of the solutions we deploy. But you know it's old and busted. Uh, but there are better solutions using config maps and and the Kubernetes resources. Oh, absolutely. One of the things that I loved about Puppet was that it scaled from running a local masterless or whatever you call it now, whatever the appropriate phrase is to call it now, um, manifest against your Raspberry Pi on the Pi directly. It's just a, it's a cron tab to make sure that you know drift doesn't happen. It went from there up to fleets of thousands of servers. And yes, it had its issues, but it was for me the first real tool that let you really handle in an abstract way lots of machines i mean environments had their their custom fleet running scripts and all the other pieces but puppet was the first tool that i came across that was kind of widely accepted and i loved it for that yep i miss you puppet and i guess i've I thought of one from i guess looking back on 2020 i don't know for me i think i've seen sre more and more and devops less and less and it feels like sre has replaced the buzzword of devops it has yes and DevOps means absolutely nothing. Yes. Uh, everything is prefixed with DevOps now. And the SRE practices, I think, actually define this set of practices that are different in every organization and every sort of implementation. But it's that it, it's a practice of what we do. It's known 
and it's known practices. It's not just flying by the seat of your pants. Yeah, I I now see DevOps in job descriptions as kind of the lower paid version of SRE. It's, oh, we need a DevOps guy. They're not quite an SRE, but we need, we need a DevOps guy to come in and DevOps the, the ops. Write some Bash or some <laughs> Python, yeah. <laughs> I mean, seriously, like I, I see no, job I, descriptions, I, and when you talk to folks, it's very much, oh, we're looking for a new, a new, DevOps, a new DevOps person, a new DevOps engineer. And it's like, yep. why? Well, they need to do the, do the DevOps work. And it's like, it's not, it, it's culture, not, never mind. It's, you, it's you, not how it's okay. supposed to work, folks. Well, I'm reminded of the way Hacker in the 90s was, there was this big social fight about, do we use Hacker to mean um, people who are doing bad things, or do we use Hacker to mean people who are working on intelligent, interesting problems? And unfortunately, the media version won. Hacker meant, for time out of mind, because of movies and TV shows, Hacker meant the, the nefarious person who's breaking into systems illegally. Yeah. And DevOps has gone the same way. DevOps now means that person who is not just an op, but isn't really an SRE yet. Yeah, that person whose job description is really hard to define. That kind of does a little bit of everything. And it's a good job to have. I'm not, I'm not trying to knock the job, but I'm frustrated at how... I'm frustrated at the way the words have changed meanings, it's literally and figuratively. It's never been well-defined. It's always been so nebulous that it's been inevitable that it's going to morph. Because at SRE, Google wrote the book. Everybody can go look up what SRE means. This is what this is. DevOps was, well, it means whatever this person, this company wants it to mean. Yeah, go read this sort of novel, and once you've read it, you can have some thoughts about it. Go read The Phoenix Project and come back. Exactly. <laughs> Which was sort of a novel, but not really. But yeah, I think SRE is where operations is going to be, is where the fun work of writing Kubernetes operators is going to be. And there are a lot of really interesting problems in that space, at least interesting for me. Yeah, there's still the work to be done for visibility. There's still the work to be done for, excuse me, there's still the work to be done for tests and automation and other framework work to enable services to make things go out with less friction and better kind of, you know, more fine-grained controls, especially for cost when you're running in lambdas or wherever else. There's a lot of really cool work to be done, but it is moving more and more into a programming mindset. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think we've even talked about it previously on the show, especially in, in terms of talking about DevOps, where, you, you know, this this field is going more and more towards uh, operations people need to understand how to program, and I, I I think it just continues to be shown that that's that's going to be a requirement from here on out. Well, when your infrastructure becomes code, we got to learn how to code, <laughs> <laughs> right? And the tools and, that you use are yeah. are essentially you know you've got to program against them. You're, you, yeah. Everything's an API now. Well, then you got to learn how to write the control the code that controls the API. And so even the big banks and the large manufacturing institutions and all those folks, they're moving to Kubernetes. So that is the future. And the way to do the cool work of the Kubernetes and not just feed YAMLs into the Terraform machine is to go and learn how to code. Well, I, when we back to our previous episode and we were talking with Darren about getting started, one of the main things was go learn Python. You're going to need to learn a real language. And I'm going to get rocks thrown at me for for defining a real language in any way, but you'll need you'll need to know how to write code with past a shell script, and that's Christ. It, it, anybody who doesn't agree that that Python is a good beginning language probably is is missing the point of that discussion. Hey, I like Pascal as my beginning language. Well, okay. I mean, I'm not asking what you <laughs> learned on. I'm just saying that right now, in this point of time, if someone comes up to you and says, hey, I want to, like, like if my daughter wants to learn how to program, I'm going to put her, put her a in, great option. in front of Python. I, and that, I totally agree. Anybody who asks me, that's the first step, go learn Python. The hardest oh. part is finding where in that giant community you can fit best and learn best. Oh, you mean are you going to use 2.7 or... No, I'm joking. 3.9. There is so much <laughs> Python resources out there for you new know, data science and visibility and a basic scripting to Kubernetes operators. It's a huge, huge community because it's that successful. Well, and it's a language that I think is well thought out. I, the, 
the language constructs or, or I guess the, 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 um, how you write is, is approachable. I mean, I personally, in my opinion, I, I like the, how Ruby does it a little bit better, but they're actually very similar and I, it's just, it's, it's just a great language to learn and you learn a lot of fundamental concepts that will carry over into other languages as well. Uh, so it's not like you're learning exactly. something that you're then going to have to like reinvent every time you, you try to learn another language. And it doesn't teach you bad habits. Like I wouldn't use Python for certain projects now because of concurrency or other issues, but Python doesn't teach you bad things about type safety and bad things about flow control and bad things like Perl teaches you as, as cool as Perl is in some things. <laughs> and I still love, oh, I God, still love no. the way Perl's regexes are a first class citizen and fight me. Come on, come at me, bro. That's... Um, but I'll give you that one. I will give you that one. The big one. thing I miss about Python is shitty regex support. It is. Yeah, but but Python doesn't teach any bad habits, and Perl teaches so many bad habits. All of them. Yeah. <laughs> Perl is a bad habit in that sense. But all now when I'm reaching for stuff, even for relatively simple things, I'm reaching for Go. Um, I find it. I don't know more sensible to write at this point which same here is weird yeah as someone who grew up on or basically is always in his professional life has programmed in dynamically uh typed languages it's it's been it was it was difficult at first to un, to really wrap my head around static typing and understand types really well i mean you know you understand them in a dynamic language but then it's very easy to just reset a variable to a a different, you know, to a, a string instead of a number or an integer or Dynamic whatever. Dynamic typing is the devil. <laughs> it, I will agree that I have finally learned and, and have appreciated that. Um, although sometimes I'm still limping along by using uh, uh, struts in, in Go and just kind of scamping out and uh, cheaping out on that way. But uh, I, I'm like Brendan. I have started to reach to go more frequently than not if i've got to write a little thing even for like sometimes what little scripts that i need to consume an api i actually use go which is kind of crazy i feel very remiss in the fact that i have yet to learn go but i've also gotten a point in my career i'm doing less technical stuff than i used to which is good and bad yeah and I, it just hasn't fit into my but you also have a you have a, a much stronger understanding like with Java and especially and Scala as well and and honestly I if I were you I would continue to use one of those languages over Go. Uh, Scala I found to be an amazing language and has the ability to even run scripted and in a REPL and everything else that some of these other languages provide. And once you learn functional programming and get your head into it, it's actually hard to go back. Exactly. <laughs> and then, you know, when we were talking about, you know, Python does a lot of these great things. Recursion ain't one of them. <laughs> so. Now, is Python called by reference or is it? Oh, <laughs> oh global interpreter lock. How I miss you. Not, Not really. So what else is on the horizon, folks? I mean, what else is, is coming our way? Who's getting an M1 first? <laughs> Not me, unfortunately. So I, I actually am really looking forward to what Apple releases next, like whether it's the M2 or, or I don't know. I, I, I want to see something with more memory first. Uh, and... I'm still holding out that maybe the bigger desktops will still have user uh, installable memory. Maybe not. I don't know. But yeah, I, you're I'm, screwed, Jared. Sorry. Yeah, yeah I think that yeah. might be a thing of the past. I, I don't know. Some some com some smart commenters are saying that they're not. You know, for the for the bigger desktops, you know, it's it's not scalable, or or at least what we've seen so far, we don't know that they could do shared memory to that. You know, like to you know, terabytes of data, terabytes of, of RAM, and it would make sense. Um, but we'll see. Uh, and, and, and since, I mean, more of a cost sense than anything, but, uh, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to it. If nothing else that it will put, hopefully get the market to get shifted to arm processors for other computers and bring down the price of mobile computing. 
Yeah, we've talked about it before. ARM is the future of the devices that you and I will carry around with us and use on our desks. Um, 2021 will be the year of the ARM. And, I mean, right now, for high-end professional laptops, the accepted battery life is in the two- to four-hour range. Why? Yep. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's mostly because we're tied to Intel. Intel. Yeah. I love the idea that the high-end laptop's battery life is more in the 12 to 18-hour range. You can get on a transatlantic flight once we can travel again <laughs> and not have to find a power connection. You can just use it. So, will the new battery life include the batteries that don't explode while you're on the plane? Well, <laughs> you're splitting hairs now. I'm looking forward to an M1 or 2 with a bigger screen. That's my main complaint with the current ones I've put out is 13 inches fine, but I prefer, if I'm using a laptop, a 15. Yeah, I, th- I think they're Doc, saving. I don't care, but I need, for working on the screen, I need a 15 or more, personal opinion. I think they're saving the 16-inch uh, MacBook Pro to be an actual Pro level. I mean, even though they did swap out the 13-inch Pro with, with the M1, I think they're they're saving that for the yeah. actual really professional chip just because, I mean, that one has four uh, you know, ter- uh, USB-C uh, or, ter- or Thunderbolt 3 ports on it with two controllers, whereas the 13-inch only has one controller with two ports. So and that, that jumped out controller? at me when they announced the 13-inch Pro was the the amount of ports. I'm like, you can't have a Pro with that few ports. That doesn't make yeah. sense. And they'll get there. And they will. This is first round. And that's why that's one why I don't plan on buying one of the first round ones. It's first round. Yeah, look for massive improvements on the next ones. I mean, that's also why I, I built the Linux box as on a previous episode or the result, of a, the result of a previous episode. And I'm still very comfortable in my decision with the minor caveat that audio in Linux is fairly terrible. You're but you kind. talked a lot last year's year-end episode about building your own Linux box. And you have. And I love it. I absolutely love it. There is nothing that I, that I need a Mac for in my personal life anymore, which I really didn't think was going to be the case. I was worried about audio editing. I was worried about photo editing. I was worried about a bunch of other things, but I'm sitting here at a machine that I've been at a Linux machine that I've been using as my primary for months and months and months. And I don't reach for my Mac laptop. I don't reach for the Mac mini. I don't do any of those things anymore because this Linux machine is amazing and it wasn't that expensive. I am desperately hoping that the Apple moving into the ARM space and the cloud providers moving into the ARM space brings a ARM desktop machine that is more powerful than the Raspberry Pi that is quieter and has all of those benefits and keeps that price point. I'm like $1,500 or so for a desktop, for a, you know, a desktop that does a workstation class, has, lot, has oodles of memory, has oodles of storage controllers, all those kinds of things that we want for what we do for a living. I want to see that on the Linux side. I want to see that that's supported by Ubuntu as a desktop that I can buy. Yeah, with with ECC memory. That's that's a key for me. That would be nice. But also with a case you can actually put, you know, more than one hard drive in. Yeah. Or whatever Apple has decided to solder to the board. Yeah, but this has been a great machine. I've even done a little bit of open source work. Um, I had some issues getting my displays. I have, I have a pair of old Apple 30-inch cinema displays hooked up to this thing, and I was having trouble with the power controller, like the the dimming after sleep and whatever. And so I wrote a little HomeKit daemon that also can toggle the screen power state. And I love this machine. I told you you would. You, well, Welcome to, to the world of Linux. I, to be fair, you've been sending it to me since 2009. So, so Jared's the lone holdout. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I would, I well, so one, I have a Linux server at the house. So I, I do a lot of things off of that. But my case is a little different because I'm I do a lot of or like when I'm out in the around in the house doing chores or whatever, I'm usually watching a TV show or something. So I'm consuming media. Uh, and so even with like a MacBook, the aforementioned battery life on that thing was atrocious when watching something off of Netflix or, or something like that. So me getting a, a, a an iPad Pro, I think, was was the right step for me just because. If I'm not sitting at a desk, it's more so I'm consuming things than doing doing something. 
You realize um, it's not safe to watch an iMovie while you're mowing the yard, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I'm more concerned with him woodworking while he's watching that how many fingers he's going to have when he's done. <laughs> and and actually speaking of that, I mean, I do there are some 3D apps that I use now or I've started using to help me uh do like woodworking and things like that and honestly the iPad Pro is a great format for that. I use the pencil to help me out with those with the drawings or to, to manipulate the the things in the 3d space and it, it's honestly it's really that that's where it excels and trying to do that on a linux box probably wouldn't be the easiest and even so a in Mac. 2021 we'll have this augmented reality tour of jared's workshop <laughs> <laughs> i'm looking forward to it but yes i would i would love to have a lower cost option for that server because i i have a, a one u uh Dell I mean uh, Intel Xeon D with I think it's only 32 gigs of RAM ECC RAM and uh that was not necessary I mean it wasn't crazy expensive but it also wasn't that cheap and I would and it's also got ma- loud fans in it so it'd be great to have that either quiet or basically fanless or extremely quiet uh with at least 64 gigs of RAM or something like that well, and I will second the noise and fan and all that because as I transition from a American house to a Dutch apartment or well, Dutch small Dutch house, my equipment's going to be in habitable space now, and my stuff that I've had that's loud is has you know turbine type of fans. I can't have that anymore. I need something that can be quiet enough so that people can live around it, and. Arms, I need something cooler that Arm will provide, but we don't have it yet. So I'm really hoping that Arm Arm servers for home become a thing, because I will snap one of those up in a heartbeat. Seconded. Both. Well, I hope that, dear listener, you find yourself healthy and well. This has been a tumultuous year, and next year will probably be rather crazy as well. So I wish everyone the best, and I look forward to keeping this podcast going throughout the next year. Stay safe, stay healthy. Please take the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night. Bye, Twilight.